You're listening to episode 56. This is Grace on Fire. Join your virtual pastor as he offers insight and inspiration into topics we all face. Be empowered. Gain confidence with God's grace so you can face life's most challenging problems. When you integrate faith in every aspect of your life, you can live an extraordinary one for a higher purpose. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan G. Smith. And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, your virtual pastor, and my goal is to help you craft your life for a higher purpose. And on the show today, we are talking about vacationing. That's right. If you have been following the show for any length of time, you know that I am that I've basically been arguing that crafting your life that your life has purpose and meaning. And if that's your intention, that is that you're seeking a higher purpose for your life, then that actually requires some intentionality and work. And now now here's the thing. Work is exhausting. Physical work, mental work, emotional work, psychological work, whatever it is, you know, that stuff is really exhausting and, and it can begin to, um, you know, take a toll on your life, you know, and after a while, you can't keep up the same pace. You know, that's just some, you know, something's going to break. And so in today's show, I'm talking about how some practical ways uh, to think about vacationing. As I am doing this, I am getting ready to actually go on a vacation in just about 48 hours. And so part of what I'm doing is getting into the vacation mode. And, you know, honestly, I just got to tell you something. I um, it, it's hard. I am a I am a driver, and uh, I love to drive. I love to drive my car. I love to drive the bus. I love to lead organizations, and I and I and I love to create, and I love to imagine and big or, or build big things. And and I've always been that way. I've always uh, been just going, 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 going. And the problem is, is the older I get the more aware I am of the physical toll that that takes. And now here's the thing. I was in, um, you know, I was a pharmaceutical rep for a number of years. And so I was in uh, cardiovascular sales for a little bit. I actually never was able to sell any cardiovascular products. I did this huge promotion and getting ready to launch this product. And then uh, my dumb company, because they blew it with the FDA years and years before, um, they were out to punish the company. Anyways, long story short, I never got to launch the product, but I learned a lot about cardiovascular health. And, you know, it's kind of scary. I mean, when you think about having heart disease or a heart attack, that stuff starts to happen in your 40s and 50s. And it can happen earlier in life, but in around the 40s and 50s, guys and gals, if you're not paying attention to your life and you're just driving yourself all the time and you're not taking care of your physical body, you're not taking care of your emotional health, if you're not taking care of your relationships, that will start to wear you down. And you factor in kids and you throw a few other things in there and it's a little wonder that people burn out, it's a little wonder why people get sick, etc. Why? Because we were not designed by God to drive all the time. We just weren't. And and I got to tell you, I'm preaching to myself. I'm preaching to myself, so brothers and sisters, because I have learned and I continue to have to remind myself of this lesson. Jonathan, if you don't stop, you're going to break. And I have broken myself a couple of times and have had to go through a long repair. I'm going to tell you a, a quick story and the reason why I'm sharing this with you. And the reason is, is about 
I want to say about a year and a half ago, I burned out completely. And uh, there was a lot of reasons for it. I'm not going to go into that. You can go and listen to other episodes in the past. But I burned out. And the the time that it took for me to recover uh, was a pretty long period of time. And uh, so I can tell you from firsthand experience that you want to avoid, avoid burnout. And one of the ways that you can avoid burnout is by taking vacations. But you know what? It's not easy to take a vacation, especially if you're not good at it. Now, in my family, we were terrible at taking vacations. I cannot recall, and I'll, you know, and if dad, you're listening to this, I'm going to throw you under the bus a little bit, but you weren't really good at taking vacations. I mean, you just weren't. I mean, we had to really, I don't remember going on vacations very often. And if we did, I just don't remember it because it just didn't happen very often often at all. So I've had to learn actually, I mean, Ivy and I, this has really been a source of contention. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later, vacation styles, but we've had to learn how to master the art of vacationing. And it is an art form just like anything else. Why? Because I think our culture is really built against stopping and resting. We are a 24-7 culture. And so we want everything all the time available, made available to us. We are 24-7, particularly in the larger cities, particularly in Manhattan. I mean, it's just, you know, it's different. And so we ha- I think that there's something, some aspect to this that where as Christians, we have to be countercultural in terms of how we approach life. And one of the things that we're going to talk about on today's show is looking at why God put in Sabbath rest and kind of looking at Sabbath rest, looking at the Sabbath from a different lens, not from a lens of a religious sanction that you have to take Sunday off or you're going to hell or something like that. No, we're talking about it from a different point of view. Uh, today. Also, in uh, the show, we're going to go and uh, I'm going to bring a little bit of a dad life segment in. You know, I've been doing these a couple of these um, lately, and that's just because there's been a lot of things happening in my uh, dad journey. So I'm going to talk about that first, right after we get this. Now, before I get into that, okay, before I go there, I'm also going to be giving you a little quick update here on my book. Now, let me just say this much I'm a little bit overwhelmed at the number of people who have reached out to me and have said, Jonathan, we're behind you, want to support you, go for it, do it, Um, this is fantastic. That's really, how can I say this? You know, it's just really encouraging to know that you, the listener, that you're taking the time to listen to this show, number one. And I think that that's... Uh, that's always meaningful to me. I mean, I've been watching the the downloads go up increasingly, and I know that people are interacting with the show, and and that's really meaningful to me. That you know that you and I can have a relationship here, and that you you know you find enough value in the show. But when I started getting these likes and and encouragements, and people reaching out and saying, "Hey, we're with you," that just meant so much to say that hey, that I have some value here that's worth taking time to put this down on paper. And so I have been doing that. I'm at about 4,000 words right now, and there's a lot more to go. My goal is about 50,000 words, so we're going to get there. It's going to take some time, but that is the goal eventually. And uh, the name of that book, Forthcoming Books, The War of Life, I'm super, super excited about it. In fact, I think what I'm going to do is, uh, as I'm just, you know, putting ideas out there in uh, the Ethernet, that is the Ether, that is that, um, you know, I think this issue of, of rest 
is a critical one. And and I, and I, even as I was preparing the show today, I thought, you know, there's some stuff here that's worth considering, particularly when we're talking about this uh, this picture that I'm that I'm trying to paint in my book about the struggle of life. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. I'm so I'm super excited about that. All right, so let's get into the show as we kick off with a dad life segment. One of the proudest moments of my dad life happened this past weekend. Unbelievable. I'm all, I just can't wait to tell you what happened. So this past weekend, the final game of the T-ball season took place. Now, I, I've talked about T-balling and, and my coaching and, and all that. And this was my first uh, season ever coaching T-ball. Now, let me just say this right up front that <laughs> I know very little about baseball. And my wife will tell you about how little I really know. But I do know more than your average five-year-old. So it was fun to be out there just throwing the balls with the kids and and barking at them and screaming at them and et cetera. And one of the most frustrating experiences, <laughs> one of the most frustrating experiences I have ever had in my life is trying to coach T-ball. I mean, you know, you'd have this kid here and um, there's this one kid that uh, he just comes right to mind. And I'm not going to say his name because one, um, I don't know if his parents listen to the show or not. And two, I just don't want his name to be associated with my angst. But there was this one kid and I just, you know, I'm just, you know, we'll call him Chris for the sake of the show. I'd be like, Chris, pick up the ball. And we'd be yelling and screaming at him and just pick it up. There it is. Please pick it up the ball. And, you know, of course, the ball would go sailing past him or he would pick up the ball and he would run the wrong way. I mean, it, it just every single thing he sort of just embodied my frustration with T-ball. And it, and it, is, it is so aggravating. So what happened, though, was at the beginning of the season. So we were really, really trying to uh, coach these kids. And so the first couple of games came around and the coaches got together and we were just getting crushed. I mean, the first game we lost like 24 to 7 and uh, the team just smoked us. Well, we played that same team this past Saturday. So we, uh, as, as a coaching staff, we got together and, um, which, um, you know, that coaching staff, that sounds like really impressive, but, um, the coaches got together, it was four of us. And we said, we got to teach these kids this game because they don't fundamentally understand the game. And so when we started teaching them the game, just the basic mechanics of the game, we started actually winning games. And eventually, we actually turned the season around, and we had a winning season. Uh, we we lost the first, uh, like I said, I think we lost the first three games, and then we won um, seven out of the last eight games. So it was really fun to see the kids win, and it was fun to see the kids uh, respond to our coaching. And so we won the last game, which was that we beat the team that had solidly beaten us and then we whooped them. It was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was fun, 
But here is the reason for the dad life segment today, not just to brag about winning, but to talk to you about something that happened. So we're right in the middle of the game and now it was a really close game. So we get up there into the first, um, we're, we're, uh, we're the first innings, we're the, we're the home team. And so we had to um, go out first. And so the guests, they, they batted first and uh, we, sh- we got three quick outs and which was really important because that set up the game. And in our particular league, uh, in T-ball, there's a six ma- six run maximum because sometimes it's just really hard to get outs at that level. And so if you get three outs and you hold a team to three or four points, chances are that you're going to come back and hit, you know, get six runs. And so our team, the one thing that they did well was they hit the ball very well. And so they were smacking that ball out um, and we had a really good, strong hitters on our team. Well, so strong that uh, we had an accident. So I would, I always in offense played a third base coach. So we went, we did the transition. We had, we moved from defense to offense. We're at the bottom of the inning, and I can't remember if it was the second or third inning. I think it was the second inning, and um, we were ahead, but not by much. And my son Sterling, and, and I'm going to brag a little bit, but he is the star player. I mean, he's the he's the oldest, he's the biggest, and he can hit the ball the farthest. And so, um, all of a sudden, I hear just this screaming from Sterling coming out of the the dugout. I'm like, what the heck happened? So, I run into the dugout, and I find Sterling sitting on the bench just screaming. And what had happened was, one of the four-year-olds, and we had a couple of four-year-olds, very young players, decided to do batting practice inside the dugout now we had told them over and over and over and over again don't play with your bats in the dugout that is not the place because these kids they don't pay attention they just start swinging the bats and knocking everybody around i know one of the coaches got nailed in the shins a couple times with one of these bats so this little kid his name is oh i gotta tell you his name but anyways cute as a little kid but he took a big swing and smacked my son right into the face. Now he is screaming. I look and there's blood coming out of the side of his mouth and everybody's running around. So all the parents are like throwing ice packs. I'm like, he had like three ice packs thrown out of him. Everybody's trying to comfort him. I said, I'm like, just get out of the way. He's my son. And so I'm listening to him and I'm looking at it. And I'm at this point, I'm really concerned. I'm concerned. Like number one, maybe he had a tooth that was knocked out, which would be awful. And um, two, you know, I'm concerned that maybe he had a concussion or something like that. But I'm looking at him and uh, he was just screaming and he was screaming because he was hurt. He was also mad. I could tell that he was just mad and he wanted to go whack that kid. So I looked at my son. I said, son, listen, Sterling, I said, I know that you're hurt. I know that it hurts, but we need you right now. Your team needs you. You're our best player and if you don't get up and go hit the ball because it's your turn and chances are we may lose this game and we have a real shot at winning and so sterling finally calms down he's listening to my voice and he's he finally gets control and i said son go grab your bat and go out there and hit that ball so sterling he manages to to collect himself now granted he's his face still hurts and he's still probably spitting blood out. But he gets up somewhere. That little boy who was screaming in pain, my little son, who was just, you know, mad and hurt and angry, he managed to muster up enough courage and enough strength and to get enough control 
to go out there and take a swing on the tee. So this is what happens. I walk out to the third base coach, to the third base. A couple of, there was two players before him. So they had gotten on base. So now we have two players on base. Sterling gets up and on the very first swing, he hits the ball and he sails it past second base all the way to the outfield and he hits a home run and he knocked those players right in there. He brought those players right in. It was beautiful. I have never seen a T-ball player hit the ball as hard and as far as my son Sterling. And we were able to get the lead and we never lost the lead after that inning. And I was so proud of my son and everybody screaming and yelling, Sterling, way to go. I mean, it was just, I mean, the place it was electric with energy. And, and after that, that just shifted the game. And Sterling came back in the next inning when he was on defense and he got he got a couple of outs and he just was on fire. And I'm just saying that this was, I mean, I told Sterling afterwards, I said to Sterling, I said, listen, listen, I said, I am so proud of you. I said, to, because today you showed me that you have a man's heart, that you will have integrity and character. And I said, son, I am so amazed at what you accomplished. And, you know, he's looking at me, thanks, dad. You know, which <laughs> he's seven. He doesn't understand what he did, but I understand what he did. Even his head coach understood that as well. And his head coach is an experienced ball coach who's coached all, he's coached at every single level, including professionals. He's coached at every single level in baseball. And he even said himself, he has never seen a ball hit that hard in T-ball. And I got to tell you this, I, I know that for, for my son Sterling, that that was probably one of the hardest things that he's ever done because he he had every right. If he said that he's done and he's not going to play anymore and that was it, I you know who could have who could have blamed him, you know, for him to go out with an in, in, uh, you know an injury like that. I mean, because it was he got smacked hard. But I'm going to tell you something. He showed more character and integrity on that day than I have ever seen him display at any other moment of his life. And he showed me something that day that deep down inside my son Sterling is a man's heart. And I, that's the way I said it. I said, you know, and in the title of this, I'm called Discovering the Heart of a Man in My Seven-Year-Old. And I'm just saying this much that, you know, when we see things that our children do like this, you know, whatever it is in, in these faces of great obstacles in face of great resistance, I mean, all the, st- the cards were stacked against Sterling to be able to go out there and accomplish what he did. But had he done that, if he had just quit, you know, that would have been the end of the game. But he didn't do that. And honestly, I have to say hats off to my son because I think that he pulled it off on Saturday and he showed me the kind of man that he has inside his heart. Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street. And that brings me to our street theology today. And um, I, I got to say this much about some street theology today. This this excites me for a number of reasons. Number one, I have never thought about the Sabbath rest in a context like this today. And uh, so I'm going to be reading to you some things here. And um, I got to be honest with you, I haven't fully processed it. I, I mean, I haven't fully 
process this, but I'm going to read to you a couple of passages, not long, a couple of passages from uh, my professor, Bruce Walkey. Bruce Walkey was one of the foremost thinkers, evangelical Old Testament theologians um, of the 20th century. I'd say the 21st century, too, because he's still alive. But I mean, he's getting up there. This guy's you know been around a long, long time. He's probably in his early 90s now. So I had him to, at the end of his career. Uh, as a as a seminary student, but he was, I mean, one of the most amazing things about Bruce Walkie was his character and the way that he prayed. My wife and I would talk about that when he would pray, he would just pray with such poetry, such poetic images of God, and and, and you could just tell that this man just had studied God and, and from a genuine place of faith throughout his life, and and so it was a joy to be with him. And um, but he he writes at a super high level, so I'm going to read to you a couple of things here that he says about Sabbath rest. And remember, we're talking about this today in terms of vacationing, and we're so we're going to be talking about two different ideas, you know, how to take a vacation as well as why we should do it. And this is really to focus on the deeper theological reasons, the spiritual reasons for Sabbath rest, because I think that sometimes, all right, so here's the challenge, right? I think that sometimes we look at vacations as a necessary evil. Okay, I know I need to take a vacation, uh, but I really like to get back to my work. I mean, honestly, I do that. I can tell you that right now. But I think that if we do that, that we're actually we're actually demonstrating our own naivety as to why that we should be really seriously thinking about how we rest, why we should rest, and what rest actually does for us spiritually. And so I think that in order for us to understand this, what I want to do today is I want to just go back to the moral law of God, which is the Ten Commandments in the Bible, and to read to you two passages of Scripture here from the Old Testament. Now, what I'm going to, you know, I'm already saying, well, you know, Pastor, we uh we are New Testament believers. Yes, I understand that, and that that's excellent. So, what I would suggest you do is to listen to this through the lens of the gospel, because I think that what Bruce Walkie is going to do is to answer that question. But I want to look at this because we're we're really familiar with these passages, but I don't think that we've actually thought about it quite like this. Okay, so let me read first of all the the passages. So the first one comes from Genesis two, two and three, which is you know basically where we see that God had finished His work of creating the world in six days and then resting on the seventh. So this is what it says. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, one of the things that we want to ask ourselves in this passage of Scripture is, well, what is the nature of the work that he did that would cause God to rest. That is an interesting phrase to me, rested from all his work. Now, remember that sometimes what we do, and and I think that this is true for Christians especially, but I think it's for everybody. Sometimes, you know, we look at work as evil, or we look at work, or we look at the hardness of our work uh, because of sin, in other words, in Genesis chapter three, where God says that He's going to, as a, as the curse of Adam, that He's going to greatly expand the hardships of our work, 
And so as a result, everything that we do, work itself is necessarily evil. And that's not what Scripture is saying here, okay? What Scripture is actually doing is that work existed prior to the fall of man, prior to evil coming into this world. So work is not evil. There is a positive aspect to our work. And I think that we need to put a positive value on our work. I think we actually need to reclaim a positive value on our work. Because today, you know, think about what the message of the world, particularly in financial planning, it is today. Save as much money, work as hard as you can so that you can retire, right? In fact, that book that I was talking about, God and Money, one of the things that the authors actually confessed to was that his password and for you know whatever he does online was retire at 40 that was his goal so he's in his 20s and he wants to retire at his 40 you know honestly i gotta tell you that's such a 20 year old statement to want to retire in your 40s as if 40 is so old i gotta tell you as a 40 year old today i'm just getting warmed up i'm just getting excited i'm just getting started I love this. I love being age 40. I don't feel old at all. I feel, you know, confident. I have more uh, energy than I did in my 20s. I have more wisdom than I did in my 20s. Um, And I love that. I love the mix uh, that I have today. And a lot of that's intentional or as a result of some decisions that I've made in my life, particularly on the physical side of things. But my point here is to say this. The naivety of saying that I want to retire at 40 demonstrates that we have a negative view of work. And what the Bible does is it puts a positive spin on work, and it actually shows and says that God uh, is, was the really, is actually the author of work, that God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So work is positive in the Bible. It has a positive viewpoint, and, um, and it also has the um, aspect of requiring rest, okay? So let's just keep that in mind. So second of all, then, we get into the moral law. So now sin enters into the world. Um, God comes in. He raises up a people, a nation called Israel, and he gives them the moral law. And then we see this wonderful text. This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what this says is that there is a cycle, a natural cycle that's built into a week that says that you're working six days and you're resting. You're working six days and you're resting. And then I would suggest that not only are you working uh, weekly, but also then you should require some rest um, throughout the year, okay? Now, this is all just sort of biblical data, all right? So this is just all biblical passages that we're looking at today. And now what we want to try to do is we want to try to apply this, you know, to our everyday life. Now, let me read to you what Bruce Walkie said, because I love this now, because Bruce Bruce is going to say some things in here, and I listen to it, and I'm like, wow, this is so cool. It's so cool, because listen to the words. So he's writing now about Genesis 2, 2, and 3, all right? And here's just a couple of things that he says. He says, first of all, number one, God's attainment of enduring rest marks completion of the act of creation. 
Earlier, we noted that by creating the world, the creator triumphed over chaos and effected life. His enduring rest signifies that he succeeded. His victory and work are complete and final. All right. So what is the importance, you know, as, as Bruce is pointing out, first of all, that is, is that God's rest that he attained after creating the world is not just because he was tired or it's not even, I, I said just because he was tired. It's not because he was tired. But actually what it was, was a mark of victory and completion over chaos, all right? Now keep that in mind, because I think this is important. God creates the world, he separates the light from the darkness, he separates the land from the waters. Two mighty things that he did, and He then he put life on the land, all right? And in the sky, and in the seas, that's the three things that he did. But the big thing there was that he overcame chaos, all right? Chaos and then he affected life. So life springs out of chaos, all right? So keep that in mind. Here's the second point that Bruce makes. Number two, in God's two great works, creation of land out of water in connection with wind, and Israel's exodus through the sea in the same connection, that's just Exodus 15.10, are God's two great works of creation and liberation. Okay, so you may not be familiar with the story, so of uh, the Egyptian liberation. For those of you who are raised in the church and saw Charleston Heston's whole uh, movie uh, called The Ten Commandments, um, you'll know that what the story that's in reference here is when ancient Israel was in bondage, that is, they were slaves to Egypt, and God's amazing story there is how God confronted Pharaoh, he overthrew Pharaoh uh, through these plagues that he brought, and then he led the people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, okay? That he actually parts the Red Sea. Now, you say, well, I don't believe that. Well, you know, let me just suggest something to you. If you don't believe that, that's okay, but I'm trying to connect literarily two events that are taking place because that's actually what Bruce Walkie's doing. He is suggesting here that God's creation, that God's separation of land and water is also literarily connected to the people passing through the Red Sea, all right? The separation of water and land in those two events. And the reason why they're connected is because we have these two passages. We have the establishment of the Sabbath in Genesis 2, and then we have the command to remember the Sabbath in Exodus 20, all right? Two very important things. Now, listen, remember something. This is called street theology. So we're going to get to application here in the next point. But I want to establish these two things in your mindsets to understand what the Bible is doing. You know, sometimes... You know, we read the Bible and we read these stories and we just we sort of treat them like a collection of stories, right? But they're not a collection of stories, uh, just sort of haphazardly put together. It's a narrative. It's a narrative of God's work in the world. And so we want to try to understand that work. And one of the hallmarks of God's work is creation and liberation. Creation and liberation. That's why a lot of times I talk about God's liberating power. When we're stuck in bondage, there's things that have control over our lives. What we need is God's liberating power to help us break free from the bondage of the things that we find ourselves in. And let me just be honest with you. Sometimes 
we are stuck in jobs, we're stuck in work circumstances, we're stuck in economic situations where we are very much in bondage. We are. Um, think about this for a moment. When I was a, uh, a pharmaceutical rep and I worked for a big company, I mean, very often I felt, I sort of felt like a slave. I felt like a servant at times because the company told me what to wear. They told me what to drive and they told me what to say. And very often they would tell me what to eat um, because they, you know, I had to go do all of these sort of um, entertaining venues and I had to take them all to these fancy restaurants and all kinds of things. And there was just a certain level of expectation of decorum that was required of me. And so I very much did not feel like I was being authentically uh, or authentic to myself because the company was pretty much ordering my life. I used to joke around all the time. I used to say, hey, I love working for Merck. You know why? You get two business casual days a week. And of course, if you know what a business casual day is, that's when you don't have to wear a suit. You wear, you know, dress slacks or a nice shirt or something. And they said, really? I said, yeah. They're like, what days? And I'd say Saturday and Sunday. Meaning that very often it felt like, you know, the job that I was working was, you know, six and a half days a week. That's what it felt like to me. So the idea of bondage here and of liberation, you know, this comparing these two ideas between liberation and slavery. Well, this is starting to make sense to me now. So look what or, or listen to what he writes as human beings exert sovereignty over space and matter. Okay, which they build with and possess. The sanctification of time reminds them that there is something transcendent beyond matter and space. All right, let me read that phrase to you again. As human beings exert sovereignty over space and matter, that is, is that as we are out there working and we're creating and we're ordering and we're managing all of the things that we do that constitute work, as we are showing an exertion here, there's that idea of work again, of energy, and we're exerting sovereignty. That is, is that we're taking, um, you know, basic things and creating something out of it, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, whatever we're doing, offering financial advice, cooking, um, making bricks, you know, offering counseling services, teaching, whatever you're doing, you're exerting some kind of sovereignty over your situation that is that you're working, all right? And so listen to what he says. He says, so as human beings exert sovereignty over space and matter, which they build with and possess, the sanctification of time reminds them that there is something transcendent beyond matter and space. Okay, so what does he mean? What is the sanctification of time? Sanctification of time, that is Sabbath rest, it's pointing us to the fact that we were not designed to always work. All right? That is, is that we are now taking our time, which is the one of the key resources that we have in life. We're taking that time and we're setting time aside. That is what Sabbath rest is. And we're sanctifying. We're saying this time is not for work. This time is not for us to labor. This time is intentionally being set aside for rest. Why? Because it's reminding us that life is more than work. Life is not the sum of our work. In fact, work ultimately will not be the defining thing of our lives. 
He writes, the critical moments are not the ones spent building, possessing, and controlling, but the times set apart for quiet reflection, meditation, and worship. Think about that for just a moment. The critical moments of our lives are not the ones where we're doing the work all the time. Even this podcast, even though, you know, that I'm um, talking to you about rest, this is not restful for me. This is work. I'm sitting here taking the time to plan this out, to research this, to write up the script, uh, to set up all the uh, electronics and things that have to go into this. And I'm sitting here telling you all of this, but this is not my quiet time. Nor is it a time for me for rest. That's coming. That's actually next week. And what he's saying is, is that the critical moments of our lives are the ones where we are actually setting apart for Sabbath rest. Why? To ultimately to reflect on God, our creator. And so what Sabbath rest does and what rest does, and not just Sabbath rest, but rest in general, what it really does is it points us back to the fact that we are liberated from our work, that we don't have to be justified by our work. And so, therefore, it's critical for us to be certain that we are reminded to rest. You know, vacations are critical for quiet reflection, meditation, and worship. And I think that we also have to think about this. Vacations are not just for play but to withdraw from the work of confronting the chaos, of, of exerting control, etc. And then we also need to remember that it has a spiritual dimension as well. And so I think that when we, when we come back to this and we think about what Bruce is teaching here, that what we must realize is that our work, yes, we were created to work. Yes, we have a mandate to work. Yes, work is a good thing, but it's tiring and, it, and it's exhausting and so God reminds us through his rest, his eternal rest, his Sabbath rest, that there is much more for us in this life uh, to think about and to reflect upon. And so that when our work starts to wear us down, that should be a signal to us that says it's time to take our focus off of what we're producing and creating and managing and ordering and to put our minds on higher things in order to Feed our souls. And now it's time for our feature presentation. And that brings me to my feature presentation, and that is mastering the art of vacationing. You know, every time I think of vacationing, honestly, I think about that movie, National Lampoon's, uh, you know, vacation, where everything just goes wrong in the Griswold family, where they just, they always just go and something happens. They try to do this. And, and you know, I love those movies. I love the Lampoon's movies because they're so funny because, <laughs> I mean, let's face it, um, they're based on reality. How many of you have had family vacations where, the, you know, the children are miserable, uh, the parents are grumpy, and things aren't working out? out the way that they had intended and you thought that what it was going to be an incredible uh, experience ultimately blows up in your face and then you can't wait to get back from your vacation in fact i um you know one of the things that it's sort of this this funny um 
I don't want to say it's funny because I, I think that, you know, what we're talking about today is the sort of the serious nature of it. But there's that saying that says, you know, you need to take a vacation from your vacation. How many times have you taken a vacation only to work your tail off or, or to to come back more exhausted from the vacation than when you left? If that happens to you and you're saying I need a vacation from my vacation, chances are you probably didn't rest it. And so what I want to kind of talk to you today about is is thinking and in terms of our thinking of just trying to understand why we need a vacation in the first place. And then also I want to give you a couple of suggestions here on how to plan and to master the art of vacationing. First of all, uh, in the last section, I sort of laid out the theology of rest and uh, in a real basic way. And when I pulled from, you know, Bruce Walkie's uh, teaching there on the Sabbath, and I think that part of what uh, helps us have insight in there is that um, the recognition that we do need to take rest from all of the physical exertion that we have. I mean, if you're working your tail off, hey, let me just suggest something to you. You need to take a break. Now, let me give you a couple of things here. You know, sometimes, and and I I don't know that this is, true in the terms of, I, don't, I think that most people realize now that mental labor uh, is just as demanding as physical labor, but also there's an aspect of emotional labor as well that is now starting to show up. So I, you know, I Googled the differences between mental labor and physical labor, etc. And, um, you know, what I could tell you is, is the conclusion is that everybody's going to say that, yes, mental labor uh, definitely has more of a toll on your lives, particularly if you're sitting around a lot you're sitting at a desk and um, you're just a lot of under a lot of stress reading, writing, reporting, advising, all the things that you have to do. What was more interesting to me though in my research was that I came across um, what's called emotional labor. And emotional labor shows up when uh, you are in a customer service situation where you're having to uh, represent an organization, all right? And so you're being forced to bring emotional energy into a situation that otherwise you may not always feel like you, you know, you want it to, you know, contribute. For example, like when you're a customer service representative and somebody calls you up on the phone and they're ranting and raving, they're mad and they're and basically what they're doing is they're just emotionally dumping on you because you're a helpless customer representative. And you know that your your job is to placate that customer as best as you can, keep the customer online, uh, and make certain that they walk away happy, right? To solve their problems, etc. And I was surprised, but I came across a couple of articles that was talking about this, and what they called that was play acting. And um, what they were saying is that play acting uh, carries with it a high cost. I mean, several, you know, I've already said this, but several articles I researched actually argued that service-based jobs can be just as demanding on people as other forms of work. Um, And I thought that was pretty interesting because if you think about this, think about pastors in play acting for just a moment. Um, There was a study that researched bus drivers. Now, think about bus drivers. You know, they got to drive around all day and, you know, welcome to the bus. You know, it's 50 cents or whatever they say. And um, so they get in and, you know, they have to put a smile on. So there was a study and this is the study. Wagner found that when a bus driver wore a fake smile, he or she was more likely to suffer insomnia that night than someone who wasn't faking it. Emotional acting was also linked to reports of feeling anxious or distressed 
and also increase the likelihood of feeling emotionally exhausted at the end of the day. These people even reported more family conflict at home. The big point of all this work on emotional labor, being friendly and pleasant and upbeat as part of your job, is that it is work, wrote Pew to the Huffington Post. It is hard and it drains people, just like physical or mental labor might. But it is often unrecognized as real work, so people don't appreciate the difficult nature of this kind of labor. Now, i got to tell you something. As a pastor, there is a little bit of emotional play acting that pastors do when they show up on Sunday, right? Because you, uh, you're, it's just an expectation that when you show up, you have to, to model to some extent uh, happiness. You're a leader, so you have to lead a congregation. Um, there's been times as a pastor when I've showed up on Sunday and I'm just feeling completely drained and um, you know exhausted, and um, I, I don't have the kind of emotional energy. And so I also know that if I get up there and just act like a grumpy pastor, then guess what's going to happen? Well, the whole service is going to be grumpy, etc. And so I've learned, you know, that, you know, there's a certain game on mentality that shows up on Sunday. Now, here's the thing. It is exhausting. And I think that that's where the insight of emotional play acting comes into place. Think about it if you're in sales, if you're a financial advisor, uh, if you are any kind of customer-based interaction where part of your job is the emotional labor that's involved in it, well, this applies to you. And I think the truth is, is that all of us, to some extent, when we are being paid, in, and part of our pay is interacting with other people, which is the majority of work, at least here in Central Florida, and I think most of Florida and, and other parts of the country, you know, we're a service-based economy. We don't produce widgets and things. You know, we don't make uh, things, um, you know, graphic artists and, and other forms of artists, they do make their uh, living by producing uh, certain kinds of things. But for the majority of people out there, you know, we're in customer service, service-based type of uh, environments. And guess what? This is what he's saying, that we're more exhausted. And so part of our labor, part of our work, part of the sovereignty over space and matter that Bruce Walkie was talking about is this, uh, are the emotional, or let me rephrase it, are the relationships that we have to establish. And I thought that this was really interesting research because I think that sometimes there's an aspect of guilt that says, well, you know, all you do is talk all day. How is it that you could possibly you know, be exhausted. Well, you know, here's the evidence right here that, um, you know, psychologists are beginning to recognize, uh, particularly organizational psychologists are recognizing that, hey, there's a real toll here. And I think that sometimes we just underestimate the kind of toll that's being ta- that's taking place. And so uh, pay attention to that. You know, uh, there is a health risk to mental labor that I thought was interesting as well. Um, you know, researchers found that patients who had overreacted. So here's what they did. They took some a bunch of cardiac patients and they ran them through uh, a series of uh, mental tests, all right? And what they wanted to do was they wanted to compare how they responded to the mental test versus the physical test, you know, getting on a treadmill, et cetera, all right? And so they compared this and some of the control group with those who didn't have uh, a serious mental reaction uh, to those who had uh, a higher level of mental stress, okay? So they were looking at the mental stress. All right, 
So the research has found that patients who had overreacted to mental stress, I don't like that word overreacted. I think that that's probably a poor word choice. Uh, I think the point here is that they had a reaction to the mental stress. Let me read this again. Okay. The researchers found that patients who had overreacted to mental stress had nearly three times the relative risk of having a cardiac event or dying compared to patients who did not exhibit cardiac vulnerability from mental stress. All right. So if you're finding yourself really reacting strongly to the mental stress, you've gotten to a point now where you're exhausted and you're just saying, I can't do this anymore. Guess what? You are actually putting yourselves into harm's way in terms of your cardiovascular health. And so I think that when you take all of this together, looking at the the aspect of, of what can happen in a service-based economy uh, or a service-based job where you have a lot of high emotional demands, you know, and then you add that into any kind of mental labor that you might put by put might be putting into it, you realize I think that, hey, th- this is this is a toxic brew. So what is the response? Well, you need to take a rest. That's the key here. And that's the whole point that we're trying to make on the show today. That is, you have to take a vacation because you cannot just continue to be 24-7, constantly engaging in it. Okay, so there it is. That's why you should take a vacation. That's why you need to rest. No, no, how do you do it, all right? So how do you master the art of vacationing? And I actually wrote it down here in my notes. I said, how do you avoid a vacation catastrophe? How do you avoid the National Lampoon's vacations? And I'm just going to give you a couple of um, suggestions here. But first of all, let me suggest something to this. You know, early in uh, my marriage with Ivy, we, we, we engaged in something called vacation conflict. And the reason why was because I had a pretty high stressful job. And uh, Ivy was not working at the time. And I, and I think that for her, that there was a little bit of misunderstanding of the, the amount of, of stress that I was under. Uh, she was in college. And so, of course, college also has a time of, of uh, stress to that as well. Um, but we were both young. And there was just times and seasons when we just did not agree on the kind of vacation that we needed. So I think that up, you know, and I'm, the reason why I'm saying this to you is because up front, I think you need to state your goal for the vacation. All right. Do you want to go, 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 or do you want to rest, rest, rest? When Ivy and I were conflicting over the vacation, I said, okay, I want to take this time off. You know, there was times when she was like, okay, well, we're going to go do this, 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 and this. And all I heard was, no, I don't want to go do all those things. I want to rest. Today, we both work full-time jobs. We have care uh, kids and we're all, we're constantly exhausted actually. So now we're like, oh, we can't wait to rest. So I think that right up front, you have to understand what is your goal for the vacation. Is it rest? Is it fun? Or are you gonna, th- you know, you know, go out and go crazy? Or um, are you just going to relax? And so state the goal. And I think that the goal for your vacation needs to first of all come from an honest assessment of where you are in your life. All right. So if you know that you're exhausted, you know that you're going to be hitting the ropes here and you're just done and um, you need a break, my suggestion is you got to rest. You got to build in that rest. It's not to suggest that you can't go out and do some things, but if you're not resting, then you're going to have the, I need a vacation from the vacation syndrome. And all you're really doing is setting yourself up for long-term failure and possibly hurting yourself cardiovascularly. So state your goal for the vacation. That's number one. Number two, 
Eliminate psychological work reminders. Don't bring your smartphones, your the internet, Facebook, laptop, etc. You know, and for crying out loud, turn off your email. There was a couple of times in a couple of vacations that I've had where I, you know, got my, uh, I got interrupted because something went wrong or something went down and I had to actually come off the vacation and to respond because of the beautiful internet. When you make your living off the internet, that you know, it's a double-edged sword because it also means that it's 24-7. And so if it goes down, then the whole business goes down, blah, 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 blah. And um, what that did for me, though, and I can just tell you, uh, you know, just from firsthand experience, was that it, you know, for every day of interruption on your vacation, it literally took me two days to recover. So in a week's vacation, if you get interrupted on, say, Wednesday, then you're not recovering till Thursday and Friday. And if you have to leave on Saturday, then your vacation is utterly ruined because you're, you're, you, it takes two to three days, you know, um, to get that thing going. So, you know, first and foremost, eliminate the psychological work reminders. Don't bring your work with you. Because if that's what you're going to do, then you might as well not go and you're wasting everybody's time. So that's number two. Number three, rest your plan, plan your rest. Now, you've probably heard the adage that says work your plan, plan your work, or plan your, yeah, work your plan. No, no, plan your work, work your plan, with the work being in the middle of that, right? And the idea is that you want to, you know, for everything that you do, the kind of work that you do, you need some kind of plan in order to govern what you're doing. Now, I think that's great. But I put this here. Rest your plan, plan your rest. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I think that sometimes you need to plan what you're going to do, right? You need to come up with a strategy of your vacation that says, I'm going to go here, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to eat this sort of food, et cetera, et cetera. Plan out your basic necessities. But don't get so crazy that you create an itinerary for yourself where you have, you're, you're so inflexible and you have all these things that you're going to do that you end up exhausting yourself. That's not going to help you, which is why I say rest your plan, plan your rest. You need to create into your itinerary enough space and time to decompress. And I think that sometimes, and I, and again, as a A-type personality, okay, we're going to go do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to see this, we're going to see this, we're going to see this, and then the next thing you know, you're totally burned out. So plan your rest. Remember, the goal is to alleviate yourself of the burdens. You need to get some rest. Uh, so do the work ahead of time. Plan as much possible ahead of time. But once you get into it, don't be so concerned to keep the itinerary that you totally blow it for yourself, all right? And that actually leads me to my fourth point, which is begin before you leave. You know, vacationing should begin a few days before you go. You know, the week before you go on vacation is not the time to start big projects um, right before you leave because it's going to take some time. Uh, It's going to take you away because you get excited and distracted. Um, So what you need to do is you need to communicate way ahead um, of the time that you're leaving. And then after, you know, once you get to that day, you know, let's say you're going to take off a week and you're going to take off on the Saturday, the weekend before a few days ahead of time, just begin to, you know, sneak in those vacation mindsets, start to wind your brain down, start to settle down because what you don't want to do 
is to be so exhausted and wound up trying to get out the door that it takes you two or three days just to wind down. Because then if you're only taking five days off, guess what? Then you only have one or two days where you're actually fully rested and able to relax. So begin before you leave uh, is one of the more important things that I think that you should do when going to a vacation. All right. And then finally, feed your mind, body, and soul. Take some time during your vacation to journal. You know, my family and I, we love to go to Sanibel Island. And we, st- we stay at a place uh, that we love. And I'm not going to tell you the name of where we stay because I don't want you to go book it the same time I do next year and I'm not able to get it. <laughs> but we stay at this place down in Sanibel. And um, we go there every year and I absolutely love this place. And um, we have been going to this same place now for so many years that I can go back into my journals and I can actually point to major decisions that I've made as a result of taking time to journal out my deepest desires and thoughts and dreams because I was rested enough to actually be able uh, to come up with this. In fact, I read a book by John Maxwell that I purchased at on Sanibel Island that was called Dare to Dream. And it was the first book that I ever read as an adult where uh, the ideas of crafting your life for higher purpose were first developed. In other words, I've been thinking and doing these things for so many years now and have begun to uh, put these things into play. And all of that came out of my time spent journaling while on vacation. So just as we go back to what Bruce Walkie said, sanctify this time, consecrate this time. The word consecrate just simply means to set apart for spiritual purposes. Consecrate this time of your life when you're taking a vacation. Consecrate it to the Lord as a time when you are, you know, you are just simply uh, observing enough quiet space in your life that you can hear clearly from God. And, and do that by reading devotional material, reading things that are going to edify you, that are going to challenge you, and to help you move forward. Because I'm telling you what, if you will do these things, what you will find is that you will emerge out of your vacation with a, new, uh, a, a sense of purpose and new direction in your life. And I'm telling you, it's happened to me so many times that I, I look at back on it now and I just think, wow. I'm so glad that I did that. So learn the, you know, learn to master the art of vacation. Remember, it, 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 the, the idea here is to affirm Sabbath rest in our lives. And because it's important, why? Because we're crafting our lives for higher purposes. And so the last thing that we want to do is just burn ourselves out completely because we didn't take the time, you know, set apart the requisite time that we need just to allow our bodies to heal from all the work. And I think that that's one of the critical things that we're doing. So this summer, you know, whether you do it in the summer or the fall, whenever you do it for us, it's in the summer here in Florida. I love to vacation during this time. Um, but uh, if, if whatever you're doing, take some time this summer to rest. And that brings me to the end of this show. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. 
Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Grace on Fire, a Verve Creative production. For show notes, updates, and more, visit JonathanGSmith.com slash Grace on Fire.